Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I know it's January. I know it's a new year. This this isn't really a a Christmas message, but we're we're back sort of in the nativity chapters, Uh, but that's on purpose. Um, There's a a really minor key at the end of, uh, of, um, in particular, Matthew's account of the birth of Christ that is appropriate on, on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Uh, so really what we're looking at is how uh, the Magi came to visit Jesus, and uh, they thought, you know, okay, um, Bethlehem and this whole region, Jerusalem in particular, are going to welcome this, this newborn king. But in fact, uh, Herod has other plans. Um, and so after the Magi visit with, the, uh, with Mary and Joseph and Jesus, the Holy Spirit tells the Magi, uh, go home another way. Don't go back to Jerusalem and tell Herod where, where you found the baby. Uh, so that's where we're going to pick up. If you uh, can stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to read verses 13 through 18 in Matthew chapter 2. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the beauty of your design to restore your image uh, in us, your image bearers. And we pray that we would receive that, uh, that power, that work, uh, that transformation uh, with glad hearts, uh, with, with faith, um, with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, right, I wasn't kidding. It's a minor key. Uh, you, you, you've got you know, Jesus being targeted. Uh, Herod wants to kill Jesus. Uh, he can't get to Jesus, so he's just going to, you know, kill every, all the babies two years old and, and, and under um, in and around Bethlehem. Uh, not something that you see in typical, you know, Christmas pageants, right? Uh, but it's an important part of, of the story to understand why Jesus came, what, you know, and what's the, the, the result, the fallout. So here we are in a new year, and, and, and we could very well ask ourselves, so what? You know, we had Christmas. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Um, D.A. Carson, a really, really uh, incredible scholar and, um, and somebody I respect a lot, uh, in his commentary on Matthew, is talking about this, this quote, you know, here that you see from Jeremiah. Uh, you look at verse 18, where Jeremiah, who had prophesied, you know, years before this, this event, is talking about how uh, God's going to reverse the curse over his people 
And then there's going to come an end to a voice that was heard in Rama, an end to weeping and loud lamentation, an end to Rachel weeping for her children, uh, an end to her refusal to be comforted because they are no more. So, so that all would end when the Messiah comes. And he's now here, and he's going to put an end to the weeping and the lamentation. You know, not in full, not yet. That's, that's still to come. Uh, but he's going to set in motion uh, this great gospel promise of, a, of an end to the, the, the curse as we know it. So um, let's talk about what that looks like and, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's image. Uh, even though the world is out to destroy that image and how the gospel restores God's image in us. So uh, Jesus comes into the world as this um, really sort of miracle baby, right? Um, I, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Oh, you are? <laughs> right. How'd that happen? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. Okay. You know, so nobody really has a paradigm for what's going on. Well, of course not. Never happened before. This is a unique birth. This is the, 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 the way that God comes into this world as the, uh, in human form to give us a perfect depiction not, of not only who God is, but a perfect depiction of who we are meant to be. Jesus is uh, the image of the invisible God is how Paul describes him in Colossians chapter one. And we, um, our word for icon is basically the Greek word transliterated. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So when we look at Jesus, we're seeing an image, an icon of, of, of the Father, right? In Hebrews, we get a very similar statement. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Our word for character comes from the Greek word for his nature. The, the exact imprint of his character. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we're going to actually look a lot more closely at Hebrews chapter 1 next week when we begin our new series uh, called Jesus is Greater, and there's a bunch of these contact cards out in the foyer, by the way, if you want to invite your friends or you know, family members or coworkers to come and join us on Sundays for the, the new Hebrews series, Jesus is Greater. Uh, greater, and, and that's how Hebrews goes. It just keeps on talking about the supremacy of Jesus over all things, and, and right out of the chute, the author to Hebrews wants us to know that when you look at Jesus, you see the exact imprint of God's character. He's the image, a visible likeness of the invisible God. And so how do we wrap our heads around this? Well, our fathers and mothers have gone, who've gone before us have thought long and hard about what it means that God would become man. And they've wrestled with this mystery and they've put it into some words that are quite helpful that were written hundreds of years ago in our Westminster Confession of Faith. I mean, I know that's bedtime reading for so many of you. Uh, if you haven't read it before, give it a read. It's the standard for what uh, all of us as ordained officers in the PCA believe. Uh, we think this is the best summary of what the Bible teaches. It's not inerrant. It's not perfect. It is not a substitute for the Bible, but it's a really helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. And in chapter 8, it talks about how Jesus came to be you know, the image of God, how the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, right? So, so you get that groundwork. He's the second person of God. He's very God. He's one substance equal with the Father. Did when the fullness of time 
came take upon him man's nature with all of the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So wrap your head around that. Very God, yet fully human with all the essential properties, even common infirmities, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and of her substance. And, and then there's this next sentence, which just kind of puts a bow on it. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine nature and the human nature, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which is fancy, you know, 17th century way of saying that when you look at Jesus, you're not looking at God coming to earth kind of disguised as a human being. Like, hey, I'm, I look pretty human, don't I? And he's not a really kind of Superman, you know, incredibly human person who's got some divine attributes that make us think, well, he's very godlike. The two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the God and the manhood, are inseparably joined together. Jesus is not partially human and partially divine, like a Venn diagram, right? Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So he's the image of the invisible God. He comes to earth, born of Joseph and Mary, and what does the world do in response to this miracle that has happened where a, a person exists now who is fully God and fully man? Pick up in verse 13. Now when they, the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Africa. Go, go to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Here's this miracle that's happened, and we're going to destroy it. The tragedy here is that Herod is seeking to destroy the bearer of God's true image who was born in order to restore God's image in us, right? In verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had been ascertained from the wise men. So um, this, is, this, this whole scene, this really awful uh, scene has been described as the slaughter of the innocents. And it's only recorded here in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Luke doesn't have it, the other gospel with kind of a nativity uh, aspect to it. Um, and, there's, and it's nowhere else outside of the Bible either, which, you know, has, has led some scholars, some, some sort of critical scholars to go, you know, we don't see any evidence of this, this event um, outside of the Bible. You know, none of the other writers from antiquity like Josephus and none of Herod's, you know, 
uh, court records, et cetera. Nobody records this, so we're kind of not sure this really happened, and we're just going to throw some shade on Matthew as a reliable witness to the, uh, the content of, of Jesus' life and, and his biography. So I'm not really sh- we're not really sure you can rely on that. And, and, and let's just pause right there and just consider that for a second. Like the ways that sort of critical scholarship comes at the Bible. Like, well, we don't see this outside of the Bible, and the Bible can't be self-attesting. That's just off limits. You can't do that. Somebody else has to attest for it, and so we don't see anybody else. So we, we automatically are going to have doubts about the, the veracity of Scripture. Well, how, we'll just pause for a second. To, to, to assume or to suggest that anybody, let alone St. Matthew, you know, one of the gospel writers, one of the disciples, would, would, would design like a, a scheme to say, well, let's, let's invent, let's ascribe to Herod this horrible event of, of slaughtering these children and, and, and put this in Matthew's mind because, well, you know what we need to do? We need to spice up the nativity a little bit, add a little drama, a, a little gore, a little blood, a little, little excitement, be, you know, and then the story will go viral. That's just crazy. That, that is no way to come up with you know, a theory for you know, why something else. There's a, whole, there's a much, much more reliable way to look at this. And it's simply this, that like, Bethlehem was a backwater to Jerusalem. Like average, probably 1,000 people, maybe 2,000, okay, maybe 3,000. But even on the higher end of the estimates for people that inhabited Bethlehem at the time, the implications for that would have been if, you know, Herod's going to this community to slaughter everybody who's two years old or under, that's not a lot of kids. Dozen kids, two dozen kids. And this was a day in the life of Herod, who was notoriously cruel notoriously bloodthirsty, notoriously vengeful. And this stuff happened all the time throughout his reign. It would be different if Herod had a reputation for a really, really solid king, you know, reliable, um, you know, really kind, really generous, well-loved, respected ruler, but he wasn't. He was an egomaniac. His nickname was Herod the Great, and he um, uh, was incredibly ruthless. So listen, um, we can rely on Matthew's uh, account here, how Herod wants to wipe out, wants to destroy the very image bearer of God who came to restore God's image in us. Jesus is God's unique image bearer, but that doesn't mean that, that he's alone in his role. He came to restore God's image in us because the image of God is in us, but it's, it's broken. Um, in Genesis 1, you know, you go all the way back to the creation account, and it talks about how God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created a male and female. He created them. And then God told Adam and Eve, I want you to, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. Why? Well, you know, okay, babies are fun. <laughs> but no, the whole point is that Adam and Eve are God's image bearers. Their children are image bearers. And what God wants is to fill the earth with reminders, with pictures, with images of what God is like. God told Adam and Eve to, to you know, be his co-regents, to, to, to take care of the garden, to be good governors, to 
to be a blessing to this planet, to you know, um, the, the community that would come from them and so on, that they would be a reminder, a living reminder of the God in heaven so that earth would look like heaven and vice versa. We know that's not how it went, right? Adam and Eve chose to rebel. They didn't want to be under God's authority. They wanted to be his peers. So they did their own, their own thing, excuse me, which means that they became broken uh, mirrors of God's image. But the thing about a broken mirror is it still, it still reflects, right? It's broken, but you still get a reflection. And really that's what we're dealing with when it comes to the kind of complexity of us being God's image bearers. Um, a friend of mine gave me a book right before Christmas. It was a, it was a gift and uh, she thought I might enjoy it. And, I, and, I, and it's, it's fantastic. It was a very provocative title called Low Anthropology written by uh, a pastor just over the, the mountain here in Charlottesville. Uh, so David Zoll talks about the difference between high anthropology and low anthropology, how high anthropology sets us up for failure. It sets us up to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It sets us up to think of others, you know, as failures for when they, they, you know, they mess up and screw up. Instead, the low anthropology gives us a gracious view of ourselves, gives us a humble view of others, makes us a lot more forgiving, a lot more, you know, accepting and so on. And it's, frankly, it's a lot more biblical because it accounts for the complexity of what it means to be image bearers of God and yet we sin, we mess up. We, we don't live the lives that we want to live. We, we know that there are things that we do wrong. So um, here's how he sums it up. Human goodness still exists and can be glimpsed in all sorts of beauty and charity, there is an inherent God-given dignity to every creature on the planet. This side of eternity, however, goodness has been distorted such that it often takes the form of inner conflict and self-centeredness. You might even say that the imago dei, the image of God, is less a picture of what we are now than of what we will be then. Well, when? When Jesus returns to finish perfecting his image in us, to, to, to repair the mirror completely, right? Um, so this is how Jesus did that. Um, he, he was born the, the unique, perfect image of God in humanity, born into a world that was committed to destroying God's image. Not only in Jesus, but in one another, right? 30 years after he was born, you know, give or take a year, we don't know exactly, it, it would appear that Herod's plot to destroy God's unique image bearer had succeeded. Because this time it wasn't Herod the Great, he had died. So Joseph and Mary were able to return from Egypt, from Africa, with Jesus. But now who's in charge is Herod's son, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. And together with Pontius Pilate, the two of them conspired to put Jesus to death. We, we know how it goes, right? In Luke 23, we read that Herod Antipas with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and, and arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And then Pilate is the one who signed the death warrant and had him crucified. So... A few days later, um, after Pentecost, the disciples are in Jerusalem and they're praying, right? This is how they pray. For truly in this city, 
there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Which now we understand that there's a plan. This, this, this design that God had put in place to restore his image in our shattered you know, uh, likeness. Jesus came into, the, into a world that was intent on destroying him even from birth. And, and so that's the irony, that God's image bearer would, uh, that, that his image bearers, all of us, would be opposed to his perfect image. But we see that all around us, right? And so the, the unimagined, if you can, you know, like something unimagined is we can't form an image of it. The gospel is God's, from our vantage point, unimaged grace. Like nobody could conceive of this. Nobody, nobody would, would, would say, yeah, I can imagine how God would do this. He's going to send his son to take on our, our complete nature, still be, maintain his full divinity, take on our complete nature, and then lay down his life as a substitute for us so that he would be our complete representative, our complete substitute, bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame on the cross, and still God, um, fully God, in order to defeat death and to absorb the weight of our guilt completely so that all who trust in him would be forgiven completely and could be restored as image bearers. Like, like that's unimaginable, right? We can't conceive of an image like that apart from it being revealed to us, and that's what the gospel is. If you want to, do you want an image, if you, if you want to try to get a picture of God's love, you have to kind of work at it. I was looking um, <clears throat> last week, I was looking for an image uh, of what my, what my dad's love looked like. Um, some of you are aware that uh, this past Tuesday was the anniversary of my dad's death a year ago. And I miss him. And so I wanted to honor him. I was going to post something. I was just looking for a picture. Is it, what, what image can I post that would honor him and that would kind of give my friends an image of what his love for me looked like? He wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes, but he loved me. And I found this in a scrapbook. If you can pop this up. I found this in a scrapbook, and that's me. I'm the one on the left. <laughs> um, I don't know, six months old or whatever. Um, my name, by the way, is Essen. So, and a lot of you know, in German, the word Essen means to eat. So I, I, gotta, I, I came out eating solids right out of the womb. Um, and, and this is my dad. He's 29 or 30 years old there. Uh, he's a lefty. And, uh, and I just like this picture because it's tender. You know? and, it, and it's a good image of what my dad's love looked like. Feeding this boy. What's a good image of what our Father in Heaven's love looks like? How can we, how can we reckon with the, the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love for us. What would that look like? 
He feeds us too. He gave us bread from heaven. He gave us the body and the blood of his son. And if you want a picture of what God's love looks like, it's a cross. And again, I think our fathers and mothers did a great job describing it in the Westminster Confession where Jesus takes this office of a mediator, the one who would reconcile us to himself. Jesus did most willingly undertake and did perfectly fulfill it, enduring the most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. But you need to know, and many of you do, but maybe some of you aren't, haven't quite connected the dots yet. The gospel is not simply the story of a brave martyr laying down his life for some great cause, his great spiritual religious cause. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Because he's fully God and fully man, he rose from the dead. Dead could not contain him. And so the resurrection is the, the truth and the beauty of his power over death and over sin and over the sentence that you and I deserve, you know, he conquered, he paid it in full, which meant that there was no more justice to serve on him. The debt is paid, and so Jesus rose triumphantly from, from the grave. So that makes him the way and the truth and the life. And so as the image of God, Jesus rose to show us that God is the source of eternal life. We find life to him, not just forgiveness of sins, but a newness of life. Third day, he rose from the dead. He, he ascended into heaven. He, he sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us, and he's coming back one day to bring us back to him. So a lot of us conceive of Christianity as this thing to believe in so that when that day comes, we'll go to heaven when we die. You know, we'll go to heaven when, when Jesus returns. And that's all true and that's all good. But that's not the only reason why Jesus came. He didn't come to just take us to heaven. He came to bring heaven down on earth. He came to make us new creations. He came to work his resurrection in us even now so that that mirror would be repaired, you know, in part. Not fully yet, but in part. So that through faith in him, as, as we trust in Jesus, as we ask him to forgive our sins, as we ask him to make us new, we become what Paul describes as a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So do you, do you, I want you to hear the ways that, here's what God does. We see this picture of God through Jesus and then he wants us to be a picture of him. He wants us to do the same things that Jesus was doing. So through Christ, God gave him, um, was reconciling us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So that's what the gospel is. God is forgiving our sins and making us new creations so that our likeness of him might be repaired and we can have a better reflection of what he looks like to our neighbors and to the nations. That's awesome. 
Today's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. What does any of this have to do with abortion? <laughs> what does any of this have to do with the sanctity of human life? Well, it would, it would be fine. It would be well and good for me to kind of go from this point and go, you know what? Those babies inside their mother's wombs, they bear God's image too. And they are a picture of what God is like, like a picture of, of the kind of God who would embrace our frailty and our vulnerability and become even a zygote in his commitment to love us. That would be fine. That would be a good place to go. But I, I want to take a different tack. I don't know that many of you need to be convinced of that, frankly. I think probably most, if not everybody in this room would go, yeah, that baby inside that womb is an image bearer of God. I think maybe where we struggle more is to believe that those people over there, those, those pro-choice people, those pro-Roe people, those pro-abortion people, you know, those now people, those NARAL people, you know, uh, those people, right? Those people. Did you know that they also bear God's image? Nobody bears God's image perfectly except Jesus. None of us bear his image perfectly. We bear it in part, and so do they. Even those who aren't trusting in Jesus yet still have a, a way of depicting some of God's glory and beauty and goodness. Not consistently, but there you go. Let me show you a graph of some of the people, um, you know, but in terms of age categories, uh, of those who choose abortion, um, we're, I want to wrap up by talking about kind of how we view the people who choose abortion. And, uh, and first, just kind of who are they? And, and how are they distributed among the, the groups of people having abortions? And, and if you look at those age groups, and then we're going to fill in this, this uh, middle column here, the percentage of those in those, those age categories who have abortions might surprise you. We might tend to think that those 19 and under are, are the, the greatest percentage of having abortions, but it's not the case. Fill in that middle column here real quick. And she is actually the people who are 25 to 29. So if you were to rank them in order, it doesn't go from youngest to oldest. It kind of starts in the middle. Let's fill in the right column. So you've got the 20 to 20, 25 to 29 are the highest rank, highest percentage having abortions, and then 20 to 24, the early 20s. And then it goes to the 30s, the young 30s and then older 30s. And then you're dealing with the teens, and then you've got those you know, who are... 40 and above, which might, might surprise you, right? So put it all in order, the next slide, and, and we can see who we're dealing with. Like the number one, the, the, the greatest percentage of people having an abortion, overwhelming, right? Almost 60% of abortions are being done by people in their 20s. And so um, one of the groups that cares uh, for, you know, and is very sympathetic to people having abortions is the Guttmacher Institute. And in the New York Times article from last year or two years ago, the Guttmacher Institute was saying that the typical abortion, typical patient who chooses abortion, in addition to having children, is poor, is unmarried, and in her late 20s. 
She has some college education and is very early in her pregnancy. The latest estimate found that 25% of women will have an abortion by the end of their childbearing years. So I just want us to kind of like humanize them a little bit. They're not those people. They're women who bear God's image. And frankly, they're, they're, from the sound of it, they've got kind of a tough life. They're, they're poor, they're struggling, they're stressed. You know, when they talk about why they chose their abortion, there's like, I couldn't provide for the child. I, I didn't want to lose, you know, my partner or my husband, or I was worried about what's going to happen. You know, all these fears, all these anxieties puts a very human face on it. And hopefully it helps our compassion grow a little bit. These are image bearers. And here's something else that might surprise you, maybe not. 36% of women who get an abortion have been to church at least once or twice the previous month. This isn't a secular thing. And what can we do as God's image bearers in the church to help reduce the amount of abortions and to bless these image-bearing mothers instead of condemning them and instead of shaming them and instead of treating them like they don't bear God's image and they're other you know, people. Uh, I liked what a guy named Josh Bram, who's the president of the Equal Rights Institute, they're a, a pro-life advocacy group. Uh, he wrote a, a blog called One Thing Every Pastor Can Do to Prevent Abortions in Their Congregation. One thing I can do that we're going to do right now. And he says, look, just do three things. It's one thing, but in three parts. Share, this is what we believe, this is what we won't do, and this is what we will do. Here's what we believe. It is not sinful to be pregnant. Did you know that? Pregnancy itself is not sinful. Yeah, of course, there can be sexual immorality leading up to a pregnancy, and we, gotta, we, would, not, we would need to talk about that, but, that, but being pregnant isn't sinful. So let's not cast shade on somebody who's pregnant. You know, there may be a discussion about, well, how did you get pregnant? Okay. But we're not going to ever assume or, or act like being pregnant is a problem. That's not the problem. Having a child growing inside your body is a miracle. And we want to be a congregation that affirms that. I think that's right. Um, David's also, or I'm sorry, uh, Josh Bram goes on to say, here's what we won't do. We're not going to encourage anybody to have an abortion because we believe that every unborn child bears God's image. Amen, right? And we will not kick a woman out of the church for being pregnant. We will not shame her. We will not let people tease her, etc. right? That makes sense. She's an image bearer. And lastly, he says, here's what we will do. We will celebrate the life in her womb. And we will do our best to love unwed mothers well, the way Jesus, you know, loved the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. And we will approach her with grace and friendship, and we will teach our students that this young woman um, is not somebody that we were going to shame and that we're going to make fun of. And we're going to throw a baby shower for her, and we're going to celebrate the baby's birth just like we do every other birth in the church. And so He's just saying, look, if, if, if we communicate that message, that's going to do wonders for the women who feel either intense shame for what they've already done or who are contemplating an abortion and going, this isn't safe. That's not a gospel community. 
That's not a community that looks like Jesus. In Galatians 1, uh, 6.1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Look, Jesus shows us God's character, right? He's the image of the invisible God. And as the image of God, Jesus shows us that God, the, the, the true and living God, is the kind of God who forgives sins. He's the kind of God that doesn't sulk when we reject him. He's the kind of God who doesn't lose his temper and throw a fit when we offend him. He's the kind of God that doesn't give us the silent treatment or lay a guilt trip on us. Those are all human reactions to sin, and then we end up making God in our image and thinking that's how he must be. But that's not how he is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The true God is the kind of God that doesn't rake us over the coals for our sins. He allowed himself to be raked over the coals. He pursues us, and he cares for us, and he woos us. When Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we need to ask ourselves, can we say with integrity, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus? We're Christians, little Christs. Are we showing the world a helpful reflection of who Jesus is? Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for making us in your image, and we repent. We're sorry for the ways that we have shattered that image. But we also um, return to you with thanksgiving because we know that even though that, that mirror is cracked, it's, it's, there's still a reflection. And through your Holy Spirit, you are repairing that reflection, and you are helping us to Show the world more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And you're helping us show the world a better picture of what Jesus looks like. And, and if they're seeing more of Jesus, then they're seeing more of you. Lord, would you bless us as we minister to our community, as we care for our neighbors and the nations, many of whom are wrestling with this whole discussion about abortion and what's in a, a woman's womb and who's got the right to that and or all of the ways that that conversation just turns so negative, so nasty, and so shrill. Lord, would you help us to be the voice of love and of peace and of gentleness and of compassion, certainly of advocacy and of justice, but, but Lord, of love. And would you get glory uh, through your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.